Our text this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. But let's read the, from verse 1 of chapter 7 for context. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear spiritually hear the word. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, this is your word. We are your people. We humble ourselves before you. You are the great God of heaven and earth. This is your word, and we desire to know it. Your word is pleasant to our souls. It's like honey to our lips. Lord, feed your people. Satisfy your people that they may rest in you and do the works that you have ordained beforehand that we should walk in them to bring you much glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, last week um, was... Significant in this sense, we turn the corner from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7, um, and uh, one brother in particular told me that we, um, it felt a little unnatural to take four verses when we've been taking like one or two at a time, but really um, there is a logical progression of thought that Paul was giving us at the beginning of chapter 7 that just flowed um, to, to help us understand a, a really important truth, and it is this. What is our new relationship to the law? What is our relationship as believers, as Christians, to the law? And the short answer is liberty. We're free from the law. And we started to unpack a bit of what that means last week when Paul gave this example at the beginning of chapter 7. He laid down a principle for us, and the principle is in verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The principle is this. The law has dominion only over living people. It does not have dominion over the dead. And then he goes on to give us an example of marriage in verse 2. He says, For the woman or a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of husband. So here we have the situation. We have two parties that are joined together in marriage. Marriage is the uh, law that binds them together. Uh, excuse me. The law is uh, what binds them together in marriage. And as long as both parties are alive, the law is in effect. But as soon as one of the parties dies, that law of marriage is broken. And he says this in verse 3. If, she, uh, if her husband lives, 
and she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. She would be in violation of the law. The law would condemn her. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And that last phrase is so key to the understanding of what Paul is trying to teach us about our relationship to the law. Because in verse 4 he says, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law. One of the parties has now died. We were married. And we were married, some say, to the law. But really what makes more sense to me in this context is we've been, we were married to sin. Sin is what we were bound to. We were yoked to. We served and we loved that husband. But when we died, that law was broken. That dominion that, it, that the law had over us in our marriage to sin is no longer in effect. And here's the key. We are able to be married now to another. Who's that? To him who was raised from the dead. That's the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the implication. And we are not called adulteresses. We are not in violation of the law for having remarried Christ. In fact, he took us to be his wedded bride. And there is no violation. The law doesn't condemn us. Why? Because in our union with Christ, we were brought to Calvary, to the cross, where all our sins were paid in full. And because of that, the law now has no more power to condemn us because Jesus took that penalty upon himself fully. We are free to be remarried to Christ, the risen Christ. And our purpose is the end of verse 4, that we should bear fruit to God. Holiness is the purpose of our being in union with Christ. A new life. It's called sanctification. Walking in newness of life, being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to resemble Jesus more and more and more. Today we come to verse 5 and verse 6. And really, I think Paul here gives us two snapshots. He's going to show us what life looks like in the flesh on the one hand. That's verse 4, or verse 5, excuse me. And then he's going to show us what life looks like in the spirit on the other. That's verse 6. So that's really the simple outline for today. We have life in the spirit, verse 5. Excuse me. Life in the flesh, verse 5. Life in the spirit, verse 6. So let's, let's dig in. Paul says in verse 5, for when we were in the flesh. Every time he starts a sentence or a phrase with for, it's an explanation of what came immediately before it. He says, for when we were in the flesh. Paul has just said, look, you've become dead to the law in order that we should bear fruit to God. That's our purpose. Keep that in your minds. Now, in verse 5, he's going to show us something about what we used to be. What we used to be when we were not able to bear fruit to God. Okay? So here's the contrast he's setting up. For when we were in the flesh. Sarx is the Greek word for flesh. What does that mean? Well, sarx is a complicated word because it has many meanings in Scripture. And there's even historical context for what it meant in Greek society that has influenced um, the understanding of what the flesh is, even in biblical times. And so, sarks in the Greek world, in Greek thinking, would always refer to the living body as opposed to the soul or the spirit. Some people make a division between the body and the soul, or some make a trifold division between the body, the soul, and the spirit. But the body, 
the corruptible part, the really the muscular part of the body. That is what was referred to as the flesh, the soft substance of the living body which covers the bone and is permeated with blood, whether you're talking about a person, a man, or a beast, an animal. That's what was the thinking for this word sarks, flesh. It's the physical, the perishable part of you, not the spiritual, imperishable part of you. And that carries forward into Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, 39, for example, where Paul says, all flesh is not of the same flesh. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. It's pretty easy to understand. There's different kinds of flesh in the created order. Flesh is also sometimes used to refer in general, to all humanity, to all humanity. Consider, for example, Genesis chapter 6, verse 12. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All people, all men in that context were corrupted. It refers to the whole of humanity. Sometimes flesh is also used to refer to our sinful nature specifically, the earthly nature of a man apart from his divine influence, meaning what is prone to sin and really in rebellion against God. That is flesh at times. Like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, strong desire of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. So this strong desire in the flesh is linked with being children of wrath. Why? Because God's wrath is against all sin. So there's a strong craving for sin that is in this flesh. That's another way of understanding the flesh. But it's not just the body. We're not just talking about the muscle, for example, of the body. It also encompasses the idea of the faculties. So now we're talking about the mind, how we think. We're talking about the affections, how we feel. We're talking about the will, what we desire to do, what our longings are. All of that is uh, included in this idea of flesh as well. So take, for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Paul says, For to be carnally minded... Is death. That word carnal is the word flesh, fleshly, sarks. To be carnally minded, so now we're talking about a faculty, a thinking power, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. It means to be earthly-minded. It means to be um, really against God, at war with Him, not subject to God's law, not willing to obey God's law, and actually further not able to obey God's law. That's the flesh, the power that our flesh, which has been corrupted by sin, has. So what does Paul mean when in Romans chapter 7 verse 5 he says, for when we were in the flesh. This phrase you're going to see a few times as we go through Romans 7 and on. So it's important to understand how Paul is using the word to this 
um, in this context. And what I think is helpful is let's look at how Paul has used the word to this point in this letter because he's introduced this idea a few times. For example, at the very beginning of Romans, in the opening part of his letter, his salutation, in Romans 1, verse 3, he says, well, just reading into it from the beginning, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, and then this phrase, according to the sarks, according to the flesh. What is he calling out there? He's calling out the earthly descent of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's introducing Jesus our Lord as both fully man and fully God. Because immediately following in verse 4, he says, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. But concerning his humanity, he was born from the line of David, the kingly line of David. That's where he hails from. That's his physical descendancy. So this is referring to earthly descent when he talks about flesh. Look at the end of chapter 2 now, Romans 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So here, Paul is contrasting the flesh, or being in the flesh, with being in the spirit. In fact, the two are opposites. You cannot be in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. And he's saying, if you want to know who the true Jews are, the true Jews are those who are not um, ones outwardly. They're not outward in appearance. You You won't recognize them by their physical circumcision or the way they look, that they descended from Abraham and ultimately from Adam. That's not how you identify a true Jew. A true Jew is one inwardly. The circumcision he's had is a circumcision of the heart, where God has cut away the hardness of our heart that was unbelieving so that we can now believe him. That's a work of the Spirit of God in the person, and that's what makes him truly a Jew. So the flesh is always contrasted with the Spirit. He really continues that idea in Romans chapter 8. If you look at verse 9, he says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. doesn't belong to him. In other words, you must have the Holy Spirit to be in the Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're by default in the flesh. That's your position. They are opposites. So in the flesh refers, in this case, to really the unregenerate man, to the natural person, the way you came into this world. Track back with me now to chapter 3, Romans 3 and verse 20. This flesh, it comes up again. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of, of sin. Now, this is very interesting because leading up to verse 20, 
he has two phrases that he uses that are linked with this idea of being in the flesh. Look back at verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Talking about Jews and Gentiles in comparison. Not at all. For when we previously charged both, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that they are all, here's the phrase, under sin. They're all under sin. And then from verses 10 through 18, he illustrates from Scripture what it looks like to be under sin, how sin dominates the entire person from the head to the toe. Then in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are, here's the other phrase, under the law, under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So here he's linking being uh, in the flesh with being under sin and being under law. Very important because as you might remember in Romans chapter 6, we had this verse 14 that said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under sin, Excuse me, you're not, under, you're not under law, but under grace. You're no longer under law. So we are not under law because we are not in the flesh. Here's the connection with flesh here. We're not in the flesh. Verse, uh, chapter 4 of Romans, um, verses 1 to 3. Look at Abraham in this example. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham did not work in the flesh for his righteousness. He simply looked to God in faith. He believed him, and he was counted righteous. He did no work. He did not operate in the flesh. What has Abraham found, found according to the flesh? Zero. No cause to boast that all the boasting would be in the Lord for his gracious gift of justification. Romans 6 and verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness, here again, of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So here... Paul's talking about the flesh in terms of the weakness of their earthly bodies in order to perceive spiritual truth. Their, their physical selves, their sarks, is not able to understand spiritual truth. The spiritual mind must be given to understand spiritual truth. The flesh has no ability to understand spiritual truth. So now when we get to Romans 7 verse 5, and he's talking about the flesh or being in the flesh, he is referring to that which is earthly, physical, that which is not in the spirit, diametrically opposed to the spirit, that which is unregenerate. He's referring to when we were under sin. You notice he says in verse 5, we were in the flesh. This is not our case anymore. This is the past. Pre-Christ, you were in the flesh. That means you were under law. You had no ability to perceive spiritual truth. When we were in that condition, we were operating in our own strength. We were really, you could think of it this way, in the realm or the domain of the flesh. That's the existence that we had, the realm we lived in. 
Clearly, he's not using flesh to refer to the body. Because if he were saying, when we were in the body, well, we're still in the body. We have a body. He's not saying that. He's saying, this is the earthly sphere you used to live in, the flesh. And he's going to contrast it with the heavenly sphere in verse 6. Our Lord Jesus made the same contrast in John chapter 3. That's why I wanted us to read John 3 this morning when he was speaking with Nicodemus. Listen to our Lord describing this idea. He says in John 3 verse 5, Answering Nicodemus, most assuredly, or verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's not talking about a natural birth when he says water. He is talking to the teacher of Israel who would have understood Ezekiel 36 very well, who knew that this water was a water of cleansing, a sprinkling that God himself would provide to his people by his own spirit to wash them of their sins. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's the key. The flesh is only able to produce more of its kind, more flesh. It cannot produce anything spiritual. The spirit is only what is able to produce that which is spiritual. So he says, Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a supernatural element here that is at work because God um, operates in the Spirit. You don't see where he's coming from and where he's going. You just know the sound of it once it's been there. There's an evidence that he's blown over you. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Why is Nicodemus not able to understand these words that Jesus is speaking? He's speaking earthly words. He's using examples like wind and birth and water that Nicodemus would be able to understand in his flesh, right? He would understand these concepts. But spiritually, is he understanding what Jesus is saying? He says, I've told you earthly things and you don't believe. How are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, Nicodemus. You've not been born of the Spirit. That's why you don't understand what I'm saying. So the emphasis that Jesus puts here is the flesh is a sphere. It is inherently limited. It has no ability to understand spiritual truth. The Spirit must give birth to Spirit in order for us to understand spiritual truth. Another way of saying that is the Word of the Lord does not originate in the earth, anywhere in the earth. It's not, this is not its place. This is not where it hails from. We looked at this in our study on Wednesday night in, in the book of Job, chapter 28. Wonderful question. Where can true wisdom be found? Can, can, can miners find it in the earth? And then we saw that the answer was a resounding no. No, though they have great ability in their own flesh to mine wonderful things, ore and purify it, smelt it, so that they can get the valuable product, 
They can't find wisdom like that. Wisdom can't be found in the earth. It can't be found under the earth, in the oceans. It can't be found above the earth where the falcon or the eagle is with their razor-sharp vision. They can't see it either. It comes from heaven, a different domain entirely, and it must be revealed to earth. So there's two spheres, there's two realms in the spirit and in the flesh. Paul is saying, you were in the flesh. Back to Romans chapter 7 here. And he says this, when you were in the flesh, <clears throat> the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Stop there. These verses are packed with meaning. We've got to look at them. What does it mean when he says sinful passions? Passions, the Greek word is uh, pathima. It, it means, sometimes it's translated motions, like in the King James. I think most of you in the NAS or ESV or LSB have passions. And the passion in the Greek is a strong desire. In fact, the Greeks used it neutrally. It could have been something good. It could have been something bad. But Paul clarifies this is not a good passion he's talking about. These are called sinful passions. These are passions that are inherently bad. Now, we have to stop at this point because when God originally created us, he created our passions. Um, hunger, thirst, sex. The humans have passions that were created good by God. They were designed by him to be good, to bring him glory, and they were to be kept in their proper context, their proper place. What happened when man sinned in the garden is those passions got flipped upside down so that they are now in the driver's seat and they're driving and controlling man. They're no longer in their proper place. Now they're flaunted and, 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 and um, pushed because man has a passion that he cannot satisfy in himself. So here Paul is saying, look, these are sinful passions, a strong desire for sin, for what is evil. And it's very interesting that passion also as, as, a, as a word carries this notion of suffering. So you, you could translate this, the sufferings of sin as opposed to the passions of sin. Why would passion, sinful passions, be described as a suffering? Well, sometimes we quote Psalm 139, 24 and 25, and I think it really answers this question. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Hurtful, a way of pain. And lead me in the way everlasting. Why would David be saying, Lord, search me and see if there's any way of pain in me, any hurtful way? Hurtful to whom? Hurtful to God. All sin is primarily against the Lord. It's hurtful to him. But it's also hurtful to us. It's destructive. We saw in Romans 6 that in the flesh we were, or as slaves of sin there, um, all we could do was produce uncleanness and lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness. The process of corruption and decay. That's hurtful. So these are these sinful passions he has in mind. And he says um, this very interesting thing that sometimes people get tripped up on, which were aroused by the law. These sinful passions were aroused by the law. The Greek literally says, which were through the law. Through the law. So some might look at that and say, well, it sounds like the law is actually a bad thing. 
after all, it, uh, is that it's through the law that these sinful passions come about. Is that right? Paul asks the same question, actually, in verse 7 of chapter 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And his answer is, certainly not. This is that strong phrase that he uses time and time again in the letter where he says, God forbid, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So, um, the law is not creating the sin. What Paul is saying here is that the law is stirring up the sin in us. The sin, these sinful passions do not originate in the law. They're in us, and the law's job is, is just to stir them up. It's just to arouse them within us. It's, it's kind of like if you were to picture um, a room that's filled with dust. The floor is covered in dust, and someone comes in with a broom and just sweeps things up with big sweeping motions. What's going to happen? Dust is kicked up everywhere. That's what the law does for us in our sinfulness. We come to the law, the law says, don't do this or do this, and we want to do the opposite. It just shows us our sinfulness. It kicks up our own dust, our own sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 8, Paul says of his own experience, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me. Uh, that means worked out to completion in me all kinds, all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. He means inoperative. It was inactive. It was dormant. It was sleeping, so to speak. But when the law came, it just stirred up my evil passions, my sinful passions. We had the same idea in Romans 5, verse 20, where Paul said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense our offenses might abound, might be amplified to our perception so that we can see how awful they are. You say, well, that's easy to understand for the Jews who had the law. What about the Gentiles who didn't have the law, right? Well, think back to Romans chapter 2 where we learned that the Gentiles are become a law to themselves because the work of the law, we're told, is written on the heart of every man. That means that God has given a witness of himself inside of all of us. No one needs to tell us that God exists. We just know it. And the testimony of creation screams the glory of God. We read that yesterday at the men's study in Psalm 19. Creation speaks. It sounds forth the glory of God. We, we, everyone knows it. The problem is they suppress it. They hold it down. They will not return praise to God in, in, in return for what God has done. So the Gentiles understand this principle as well. Those who don't have the law of God, who have the work of the law, this conscience within them that's written in their heart, that is an alarm system that sounds when they do what's wrong. Their conscience accuses them when they're doing what's wrong. Let me give you an illustration. What happens if you um, take something that is off limits and you put it in front of a child and you say, Johnny, do not touch that, whatever you do. <laughs> I mean, his craving is to touch it. He wants to do it. Where did that come from? That's sin. That's the sinful passion in the heart, a strong desire for what is evil, to cross the line of what mom and dad said. Um, so don't just think that the law stirs up, um, um, and don't just think the law stirs up what is kind of 
grossly forbidden. Um, you know, people think about murder or adultery or, or theft. But what was this evil desire that Paul tells us about in Romans 7 that he experienced in his own heart that he didn't know was there until the law made it clear? Covetousness. Covetousness. What's that? That's an attitude of the heart where you are not satisfied with what you have and so you want what others have. Or you don't want others to have what they have. That's covetousness. Paul says, I didn't know about covetousness until the law said, you will not covet. And then it hit him like a freight train. So, these sinful passions are aroused by the law. And I want you to notice again, he says they were aroused by the law. This is past tense. This goes along with the past tense of we were in the flesh. And he says, these sinful passions were at work in our members. This is so timely because this morning we were just in Philippians chapter 2. And in verse 13, well, 12 and 13, um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works, same word, works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Works, it's the Greek word energeo. Does that sound like an English word we know? Energy. Energy. He's saying these sinful passions were energized in our members. They were operative. They were powerfully displaying their activity in our bodies. Not just the physical hands, feet, eyes, but again, think body in terms of our members, in terms of faculties, in our thought life, in our desires, in our affections. That's where these sinful passions are at work and working themselves out. And Paul uses the imperfect tense here for these passions were at work. They were at work. It's, it means they were representing uh, or they were continually and repeatedly acting without stopping. It was the condition we were in perpetually in our members. And he says the result was to bear fruit to death or to bring forth fruit to death. The, the sinful passions were constantly at work in us to constantly bring forth fruit to death. We saw that idea and we, we discussed that in Romans 6, verses 20 and 21, but in the context of slavery, remember? When we were slaves, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. You were altogether out of that domain of righteousness. Righteousness had no control over you. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So the, the, the fruit that you were producing that led to death was because you were a slave of sin. All you could do was bear fruit to death. You had no ability to bear fruit to God. Death in the sense of corruption, as we've talked about, and, and also in the final sense. You were heaping up the wrath of God for yourself against the day of wrath, which is the final judgment when he would pour out his wrath in full against you. That was the position you were in, and I was in. And so he's making the same comparison here. I hope you're seeing he's describing the same concepts with slightly different language so that we can think about it in different terms. <clears throat> but he really wants us to understand these concepts, and, and he's hammering them home. Now he's saying, look, when we were in the flesh, the same was the case because the law had this influence on us where rather than helping us achieve any kind of righteousness, it actually worked against us. It, it just stirred up and amplified our own sinfulness. It's like the light of God's law just turbocharged our sin. 
which only corrupted us and prepared us really for eternal damnation. So ask yourself this question. What does that tell you? What does this doctrine tell you about people who believe that they can follow the teachings of the Bible just to become better people? Is that possible? Not at all. Well, what about anyone who thinks that he can do what is right in God's sight by following some kind of moral code or conduct? It's not possible. Because every moral code or conduct roots back to the law of God, which is at work in the heart of every man. To know fundamentally what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We all know that. Every moral code is rooted in God's law, so we can't get away from it. And every time people um, are confronted with an opportunity to do right or wrong, this law is shining, maybe dimly, but it's shining and exposing the darkness of their heart. And what's their response? It's always to recoil at the light. They want nothing to do with the light. They want to run from the light and, and stay in the darkness. So what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that the law, we have to understand its function when we were in the flesh, before we were in Christ, before we were believers. Its function was, rather than helping us to live a godly life, it actually worked against us just to expose our sinfulness. It was never meant to be a program for salvation. It was actually a mirror where God was saying, look at who you are. You don't measure up by any means. And the effect that that was intended to produce was desperation. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I can't do this in my own strength. Um, Pelagius, we learned this morning in his controversy with Augustine in the 4th century, was arguing, why would God ever command anything that man cannot obey, cannot complete in his own power? That's exactly the wrong understanding of the law. The law was not given so that we could do it and attain righteousness. That was the promise if anyone could do it, but clearly no one could do it, except for one, the one that we praise and worship. He alone has done it. So, um, verse 6. We've seen now what we were like when we were in the flesh. Paul now wants to paint the other picture of what it's like to be in the Spirit. What it's like to be in the Spirit. Look at verse 6. But now we've been delivered from the law. Now, here's the contrast. Life in the flesh, but now, no longer life in the flesh. We've been delivered from the law. And you have to ask, in what sense, Paul, do you mean that we've been delivered from the law? Well, he's going to answer that as we keep going, so hang on to that. He uses this word for delivered, katargeo. We've seen this before a few times. He used this most recently in verse 2 of chapter 7 where he says, uh, but if the husband dies, she, the wife, is released. That's the word, from the law of her husband. She is um, released. The law no longer has dominion and power over her. It does not condemn her any longer. That's the word he's using here. He's saying, we have been delivered in that sense. We've been released from the law and from its power, from, from really from its condemnation. And why did we need that deliverance? Well, we just saw that we were caught up in this vicious cycle um, with our sinful passions, right? Where they were only being energized to sin more and more in the light of God's law, His truth. And there's no way out of that. 
here's how he puts it. He says, having died to what we were held by. That word for held by means suppressed, held down. We were held down by the law. That's what he's literally saying. In fact, it's the same word that Paul used at the beginning of his epistle in Romans 1.18 when he said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, who hold down the truth in their unrighteousness. Same word, katecho, to suppress, to hold down. We were being held down by the law, he says now in this context. So every time we tried to do what was right to demonstrate some kind of goodness in ourselves, we missed the mark. We were held down. We were not able to do what the law said we should do because we were operating in the flesh, in the flesh, not in the spirit. Um, you, this Romans 14, verse 23, short but so important, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. When we are operating in the flesh before we're saved, we're not in a, a position of faith. We're not believing. So everything that we do from God's perspective is sin. We cannot satisfy his requirements. In fact, the way Isaiah puts it is all our righteousness is, you know, this filthy rags. Even our best righteousness is not even um, something God wants to look on. So can you see how Reich's, right, works righteousness as a system? And this applies to every religion apart from the true faith, the Christian faith, um, is an impossible position. Every system of works righteousness where we, at least in some small part, are cooperating to earn a righteous standing with God is totally impossible because of this principle that the law only stirs up our sinfulness and holds us down. There's no such thing as climbing the ladder to heaven because of this. We're not able to. We're held down. Back in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says this very interesting phrase, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, who is in heaven. So he's saying, I'm talking to you, Nicodemus, on the earth, and I'm in heaven at the same time. And no one has ever ascended heaven except for me, the one who came down from heaven, who was able to go back to heaven. Amazing. Two different spheres, in the flesh, in the spirit, right? So here was our position, brother and sister. We were in the flesh. We were held down by the law. This really helps us to understand what Paul meant in um, chapter 6, verse 14, when he says, we're not under the law anymore. We're not held down by it anymore. So how did we get out from under the law, from that impossible position? That's really the question, right? And this is how Paul answers it in verse 6. He says, having died to what we were held by. Death is actually what released us from that position of being held down by the law. Remember the principle in Romans 7, 1. The law only has dominion over a person as long as he, what? Lives. But once you're dead... The law has no control over you anymore, no dominion over you. There's an escape here. When we died with Christ at Calvary, we got out from under this oppression of the law that holds us down because of our own sinfulness. This is what Jesus describes when he says, the wind blows where it wills, 
You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is a supernatural work of God that has happened to each one of us who are born again. The Greek word is actually anothen. It means from above. Not born from below like we were the first time. Earthly. Bound to this earth. He says, no, you were born, you must be born from above. So what are we saying? We're saying that we've been transferred into a new realm. We were in the realm of the flesh. We are now where? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, look at this, verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When we were spiritually raised with Christ, like we saw in Romans 6, or in the language of Jesus with Nicodemus, we were born again. We were raised all the way to the heaven where Christ is. This may be a concept that is new for some of you or just is mind-bending because it is, but stay with this. This is spiritual truth. Our spirits were regenerated not here on the earth, brothers and sisters, but in heaven. That's why Paul can say you are now citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is there. It's not here anymore. Your body is still here on the earth, but guess what? You've been born from above and your spirit is now in heaven with Christ reigning. It's just a matter of time before he regenerates your body in the resurrection and rejoins your spirit with that body and you reign with total dominion over sin forever on the new earth that he's going to bring. But this is the interim position that we have in our sanctification. Consider Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, 20. From which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. This is, I mean, we fly over some of these texts, but let's slow down. From which, from where? From heaven, we eagerly await the Savior. That's now. That's our position now. We're eagerly awaiting from heaven where we are seated with Christ. And, and what he says is, the Lord will transform our lowly body. What's he referring to? The body that's on the earth. Lowly, in the in the earth, not in the heaven, where we have been taken from the dust and will return to the dust temporarily. For you were in the flesh, but your spirit has now been redeemed. And here is the wonderful truth that Paul is going to get to later in Romans 7. There is a new you that now exists. You were not the you you used to be. You are actually seated in heaven. The spiritual you is the new you. You've been born from above. And the life that is now indwelling your lowly body is not your life anymore. Guess whose life it is? The life of Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? So Paul is saying, look, I still have a life in the flesh. You still have a life in the flesh, but it's not your life anymore. Your old man has been crucified with Christ, and it's now Christ's life that is in you. That's your new identity. Amazing truth. What's the reason the gospel was preached? But that we would live in the Spirit with God the way he lives in the Spirit with God. Wow. So how do you know that this miraculous event of the new birth has occurred? That you've been transferred to this new domain. You're not in the flesh anymore. You're in the Spirit. Well, the simple answer is you have your fruit to holiness. What's the evidence of that? You are believing now in the Lord Jesus Christ and you love the brethren. <laughs> Those are two wonderful evidences that you have passed from death to life. You're now in the heavens and you're not in the flesh anymore. You love what God loves. You hate what God hates. You're evidencing the fruit of the Spirit, His character in yourself. It comes out in your words and your deeds for all to see. So this is a shift in thinking for a lot of people because what Paul is saying is, look, you are simply evidencing what God has already accomplished supernaturally in you without you even knowing it. He's telling us what happened to us because we didn't know. The wind blew over you, the wind of God's Spirit. You don't know where it came from and where it went, but the sound is there. There's an evidence that He's blown on your life. You're different now. You bear fruit to holiness. And here's the great purpose that Paul identifies for our deliverance. He says, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Um, he doesn't use the typical um, transition for so that. He uses a different one, which means really more therefore. It's a concluding remark. He's saying, therefore, we should serve. And it's not just a as it sounds, it's a very strong word. It's the, the word of slavery. The word is that we should slave. He takes that word for slave and he makes it a verb, an action. He says that we should slave in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So he's talking about obedience to our new master. This is back to Romans 6 again, right? We had our old master sin. We now have our new master righteousness, Christ. We serve him. Everyone serves somebody. Everyone's a slave. You remember, there's only two kinds of master. There's either sin or righteousness. Sin or God. And everyone is a slave to one or the other. And we ask that question, whose slave are you? Well, look at the pattern of your life. Who is it that you obey? Whose voice do you listen to and follow? That tells you who your master is. So he says... We slave now in this newness of the Spirit. And um, when he uses the word new, there's two ways in the Greek that new comes out. Two meanings. One is the word neos. It means new in time or chronology. Something that comes later than something else is neos. It's new. But he uses here this word kenos, which means new in nature, new in quality of a different kind altogether that's superior to the old. 
This is what he means when he says that we should walk in newness of life, kenotitis of life, a new quality of life, a new kind of life altogether. This life he describes here is, he says, of the Spirit, newness of the Spirit. He uses the genitive case, which means ownership. Ownership. This is the life of God himself. He owns this. This is his realm. This is the realm of the Spirit that he's brought us into. We're no longer in the flesh. We belong to a a new realm, a heavenly realm that's dominated by the life and power of the Holy Spirit in us. What is oldness of the letter? Well, again, there's two words that can describe old. There's one that's archaeos, which is like archaic, right? And that means old in chronology, in time. And the other word is paleos, and that means old in quality. That's the word he's using here. We don't serve in the oldness of the letter. He uses paleotis, which means oldness, that which is outdated, old in quality. Uh, You think about the old covenant, for example. Did it come before the new covenant chronologically? Well, yeah, in space and time, you could say it did. It was given first to Moses at Sinai. People received it. What about the new covenant that was ratified by Christ in his blood at Calvary? So chronologically, the old covenant came first, but remember, the new covenant is also called the everlasting covenant, a covenant that had no beginning and has no end. So that doesn't work. He's talking about what is old in quality when he says we don't serve in the oldness of the letter. Now, it's very interesting. It's like each of these words is packed with meaning, and You've got to stop and look at it when, when it's warranted, and I think it's warranted here. When he refers to the letter, he's talking about the writing. The word he uses in the Greek is the word the writing. We don't serve in the oldness of the writing. That's a reference to the law of God that was delivered to Moses and written down. Written down. The law of Moses, he says, is old in quality. It is outdated compared with the newness of the Spirit. So he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. What makes the Old Covenant old, brothers and sisters? You know what? Let's let the Scripture speak to us on that directly. Hebrews chapter 8. This is so good. Hebrews chapter 8 is where the author to the Hebrews is repeating the New Covenant that's taken from Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's very interesting because he is addressing what was addressed to the house of Israel and the house of Judah to the church to the Hebrew Christians specifically, but he's addressing this to the church. He's saying this prophecy in Jeremiah 31 has application to you believers. And here here it is, verse 7, Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Israel. Of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach their neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, old, out of date. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What makes the old covenant old? There was a fault, he says, with this first covenant. Look at verse 7 again. If the first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second. There was a fault with the old covenant. What was the fault? The fault was us. Look at verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They were not able to keep the law. He says, because they did not continue in my covenant in verse 9, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. There was a problem with the old covenant. What was the problem? Them. The law is good. The law is spiritual. Romans 7. The law is holy, just, and good. The problem was never the law. If there's a fault with this covenant relationship with God's people, the problem was with the people because of their sin. They had no ability, no power to obey. They walked away from the Lord because they were in the flesh. In the flesh. So, what makes the old covenant old? Well, it was defective because of the sinfulness of our hearts. It was not a program of salvation. It wasn't possible to be saved by obeying the law. That's why Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who also made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Notice the distinction. Letter, spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There's no salvation in the old covenant because they can't keep it. No one can keep it as the law requires that it be kept. This is important. The law requires that it be kept in at least two ways. The first is all the law has to be kept. You can't break even one part of it. Otherwise, you've broken the whole of it in God's mind, right? Um, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's Galatians 3.10. But the law also requires that it be kept as it was intended to be kept. And what I mean by that is this. The law is spiritual. The law is spiritual because it's a direct reflection of God who is the father of spirits. So when the law was given to Moses, the law had to be reduced from its spiritual essence to physical letters so that we could have it externally written down. So we could read it and understand something of the words. We're told in the law of Moses that the law was written with the finger of God, where? On tablets of stone. Tablets of stone. Have you ever thought about why God etched his spiritual law on tablets of stone? How is it that the heart of man is described in the scripture? A stone. A rock, hard, sclerotted. Listen now to the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. This is God's own proclamation of himself. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. God's intention was to place his spiritual law, his word, in our hearts. That's why he put it, etched it on hard rock to say, this law needs to go into the hardness of your heart. That's where I want my law to be etched. And so he says, circumcise your heart. And their answer is, we can't. God help us. We can't. But that's exactly what he does for us in the new covenant, brothers and sisters. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That's the work of the Spirit. The law which is spiritual must become internal to us. It must come into our hearts and be written there in the innermost part of us where we care most. The law that is spiritual can only be kept, satisfied, fulfilled, guess how? In the Spirit, not in the flesh. In the Spirit. The flesh can never satisfy the Spirit of the law. That which is flesh produces only flesh. And that which is spirit can produce what is spirit. The Pharisees, they tried their best to keep the letter of the law. They were fastidious. They were very careful to keep the letter of the law. They said, I've never committed adultery. Physically, I've never done that with another woman. I've never physically murdered anybody. I'm not an idolater. I serve the Lord God of Israel and not Molech and other pagan gods that surround me. But the problem was, did they ever love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their mind and all their strength as the Shema demanded? Did they do that 24-7 every single day? No. None of us does. That's the problem. So they missed the entire spirit of the law while they were trying to keep the letter of the law. They were trying to find compliance where they could with their interpretation, their understanding of the letter of the law is written on stone. But God says you've missed the whole point. There's a spiritual quality to the law and you haven't got it because you're in the flesh. That's why Paul says the letter kills. That's why it holds us down. That's why it condemns us. That's what it means to serve in the oldness of the letter. We're seeking for righteousness in a sphere in the flesh where it's not possible to find righteousness. There is no righteousness in the flesh on the earth. So, as we ask ourselves these questions, um, what does it mean to serve, to slave in the newness of the Spirit or in the oldness of the letter? We're going to expand on this more next time. There's so much here, I just, we have to stop. But um, the rest of chapter 7 is really an answer to this question. Here's what it means to slave in the flesh. You want to see what it looks like to slave in the flesh? Read the rest of chapter 7. Then you want to understand what it looks like to slave in the Spirit? Read chapter 8. That's it. He's going to expand this as we go. And these are the two anchor points. These verses are pivotal. We have to understand these verses. The two different spheres. We're no longer in the sphere of the flesh. We're in the sphere of the Spirit. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as uh, unto spiritual. I had to speak to you as unto carnal, fleshly. Some people say, well, that confuses me because it seems like there's such a thing as a carnal Christian, a fleshly Christian. Not true. Paul's saying, I had to speak to you as if you were still in the flesh, acting carnally. You're not. You're in the spirit. So don't act that way anymore because you can act the right way. You have the power. The spirit of God is now in your heart. His law is written on your heart to obey him. Obey him. So to serve in this newness of spirit, to slave in this newness of spirit, it means to be born again. You must be born again. You have to be filled with the Spirit of God. The law has to be written on your heart. And now Pelagius' question is answered. Why would God command something that we can't do? Guess what? We can do it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is energizing within you to do and to will for his good pleasure. God is now the energy that is energizing our members for fruit to holiness. No longer are the sinful passions energizing us by the law. We have a new relationship with the law, brothers and sisters. The law previously held us down. Guess what? Now we love the law. The law which held us down is now the same law which builds us up and makes us more like Christ. It has a different effect on us. Because now we are energized by the Spirit of God to live and understand the spiritual intent of that law, which only God can do in the heart of a person like you and me. So here we have the psalmist in Psalm 119, like we read this morning. Listen to this love for the law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Do we meditate and think on the things that we love? You bet we do. We spend a lot of time. You want to know what somebody loves? Look at how they spend their time. Where the heart is, there is their treasure. The treasure and the heart are always in the same place. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Hmm, satisfying. Psalm 119, 111. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage, an inheritance forever. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. If there's one thing I want more than anything else, he says, it's your law. I love your law. No one would say that who is held down by the law, who is condemned by the law. But because we have come to Christ and we have faith in him who took our punishment in full, past sins, present sins, future sins, never again to be held against us, praise God. Guess what that does for the conscience? It frees our conscience from what the, the writer of the Hebrews say are dead works. Frees us from that guilt of operating in our flesh, in the realm of the flesh, only producing fruit to death. It frees us from that guilt, from that, um, uh, that feeling of, I've never done enough to satisfy the wrath of God. And he says, you can rest now. Christ has done it all for you. Rest in him. Your conscience is clear now to serve the living God. Serve him with all your being. I hope you see, brothers and sisters, this, these wonderful contrasts Paul is drawing out here. He's saying many different things, but they're the same two concepts again and again. In the flesh, in the spirit. Under law, under grace. Dominated by sin and law, dominated by the spirit. Married to sin, 
married to the risen Christ. The old, the new. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're not the old anymore. You are new. Your life now is a spiritual life that is internal. And you are seated in the heavens with Christ. Live in that power. Meditate on these truths and the Lord will give you victory in your daily life when you are encountering sin. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up. Repent and turn to him in faith as the practice of your life and you will find that you have the joy of the Lord. His forgiveness is yours. We are not in the flesh. We are in the spirit. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Only you could have done for us what you have done in rescuing us from that position of oppression under the law and because of our own sin, holding us down, constantly energized to only produce sin to death. Lord, that is a hopeless position, but praise God you have acted on your own, had mercy on us who deserve only your wrath. You've made us your children by grace. And Lord, now we slave in the Spirit, we no longer have the fear and the dread of bondage to sin, a bondage to the law, not ever knowing if we've done enough to satisfy you. We have rested in the perfect work of your Son, Jesus, for us. And because of this, we now work with all our energy, knowing that it is you working in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. We exhaust ourselves willingly for you, Lord, not to earn anything, but as an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done for us. Father, help us to live in the freedom of these truths today, this week, and every week. Change us. Help us, Lord. Correct our thinking where it's been wrong. May we walk in truth and holiness for your glory and your namesake. Amen.